traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Huge protests after Myanmar's coup in February have long since died down, but a resistance movement still exists. We meet an ordinary citizen with no history of violence who's ended up as a somewhat conflicted freedom fighter. And one of the most important record labels in history doesn't have any famous musicians. You can't even buy their records in shops. But you can hear the label's music absolutely everywhere. First up, though. France's former president, Nicolas Sarkozy, was convicted yesterday, again. In March, as he arrived to face the verdict in an influence-peddling trial, the country wondered just how much immunity former presidents could count on. In the end, not so much. He was sentenced to three years in jail. This week, another conviction for illegally financing his unsuccessful re-election campaign in 2012. Again, he will appeal against the one-year prison term handed down this time, and he's unlikely to spend any time in jail. On one hand, these verdicts give citizens more cause to be suspicious of France's political class. On the other, they have decidedly more reason to think that their politicians will be held to account. To understand what's happened to Nicolas Sarkozy, you really need to go back to his first term in office in around 2010, when investigating magistrates in France started to look into a case involving the L'Oréal heiress Betancourt. Sophie Petter is our Paris bureau chief. And it was a case of whether or not he had used influence on an elderly lady to persuade her to part with money to finance the campaign. Now, that was really just one of many cases that over the years has, has sort of swirled around uh, Nicolas Sarkozy when he was president and afterwards. And it's really taken all this time until this year before finally two of them have come to trial. And so how does this latest trial fit into all of those swirlings then? Well, there was a case earlier this year in March, which ended in a conviction for Nicolas Sarkozy already. So this is not the first time he's been convicted. The previous one was to do with influence peddling and whether or not he had tried to extract information from a judge in return for an offer of a job for him. He was found guilty of that. This one, this particular case refers back to campaign financing and whether or not he had overspent the campaign financing limits in France, which are 22.5 million euros. And he, the, the court found that he'd spent double that and he should have known about it or didn't know about it or ought to have known about it. In any case, they decided that he was guilty of breaking the law. So not just spending too much according to the law, but by quite a bit. What did all of that money get spent on? 
Well, I mean, I think one has to put it in perspective. Don't forget that the campaign limits in France are relatively strict. So these are not big sums by the standards of an American campaign. Nonetheless, the law sets the limit. And what Sarkozy did during that re-election campaign in 2012 was to stage a number of really quite glitzy campaign rallies that involved big stage sets, lots of sound and music. And that's how he managed to rack up these sorts of bills. And what happened is that the party decided that they would get the bills invoiced to the party rather than the campaign. And in that way, uh, it would look as if Sarkozy's campaign itself hadn't overspent. But the court found that, in fact, it was all the same campaign. Ultimately, the money was going on these rallies and therefore it was a breach of of those campaign finance limits. And has Mr. Sarkozy had anything to say publicly about all this? Sarkozy has already uh, appealed against this sentence and this conviction, as he did for the previous one, when he called the uh, sentencing of him completely disproportionate. And his friends have certainly come round and, and spoken out and said that they found that this was part of a sort of political, almost witch hunt to drag down uh, Sarkozy's name. What about the reaction in France more generally, though? How has this second conviction been received? Well, I suppose in a way it's been less intense a reaction than it was the first one. The first one really did send shockwaves through the French political class because there was a sense of impunity among politicians in France and particularly among presidents that they they could somehow get away with some of these things. And that really set a precedent in Sarkozy's first jail sentence in March this year. So this one is sort of yet more evidence for those who feel that he's been targeted, but also yet more evidence for those who feel that France is finally... Uh, putting an end to that sense of impunity and that all politicians have to be held to account, and that includes their presidents as well. And what do you suppose that means for the, the wider perception of Mr. Sarkozy, his his legacy? Well, although he is now, as almost all French presidents are when they leave office, he's relatively popular in France. He certainly wasn't when he left office. And I think he remains in some respects a divisive figure, but the difficulty is this will damage his legacy. There's no question about it. He did uh, do some very positive things in France, but I think that history is now going to look at that in the context of these convictions, if they're upheld on appeal, and judge him for that as well. And I suppose the bigger question is, what does it mean for his party, the the Republicans, which is the main party on the centre-right in France today? And, And what effect might that have? Well, there are French presidential elections next year, a two-round election in April. President Emmanuel Macron is expected to stand for re-election, but there will be a challenge from the political right. And Sarkozy's party, which has been rallying around their former president and very much supporting him and expressing sympathy for him, nonetheless, it's difficult to see that there will be no effect on the image of the party in the run-up to that election, even though whoever emerges as the candidate for that party will, I'm sure, at some point put distance between him or her and the Sarkozy presidency. But is it just the Republican Party that's damaged by this by proxy? Well, in some respects, it may be the whole political class that's damaged. And this is one of the questions that's going to be asked in the run-up to the election. You know, there is both on the left and the right, on the extremes in French politics, a very strong anti-establishment line and message. There are various populist candidates who are pushing this, and Marine Le Pen is one of them. And they do thrive on the accusation that is leveled at the mainstream politicians that they're all as bad as each other, that they're all up to no good, that there's one law for ordinary people in France and there's another for those who are elected right to the top. 
So as you say, the era of presidential impunity seems to be gone and to be replaced with one of accountability, I suppose. Do you think all of this taken together represents a change in French political culture? I think it does. You know, it's very, very rare to get jail sentences, let alone convictions. And I think that that creates a sense of impunity, which lasted a very long time. And this, in a way, really does put an end to that. It is a reminder to anyone going into politics or into electoral office that they are accountable and that the courts will make sure that that's the case. So I think that in that respect, it does represent quite a change for France. Sophie, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Today marks eight months since the coup in Myanmar. The military removed Aung San Suu Kyi and her National League for Democracy that had won by a landslide in November's election. It put her on trial and declared a year-long state of emergency. The coup sparked a mass uprising, which in turn led to a brutal crackdown. But resistance persists. In March, I was put in contact with Tin Lin, who's a 24-year-old Burmese guy, by my fixer, a local journalist I was working with. Charlie McCann is our Southeast Asia correspondent. I'd been covering the coup and the protest movement that had arisen in opposition to it. And so I, I wanted to talk to a young resistance fighter. And so over the next few months, Tin Lin and I spoke about a, a dozen times. It was me. Hello. 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 Him and a translator. We were speaking via Zoom. Happy, happy thing, yeah. And I was really trying to understand what had driven him to become a guerrilla and what it was like for an ordinary person with no history of violence to be thrust into this conflict with the military. So when Tinlin was growing up, it, it was a difficult time for Myanmar. The country had been ruled by the military for decades. And it was a deeply oppressive military regime, you know, much along the lines of the North Korean regime. But for Tin Lin, army rule was just a fact of life. The army was a permanent fixture on the landscape. If Tin Lin was a fish, the military regime was the water that he swam in. Things, though, began to change in the 2010s. The generals began to liberalize the economy. The country began to open up. And Tin Lin, like... The rest of the Burmese people began to enjoy a lot of new benefits that came with those reforms. Mobile phones, which had once been the preserve of the very wealthy, became affordable. Everyone within a few years had a mobile phone. And, and Tinlin began spending a lot of time on the internet. 
And what he read online taught him that everything he'd learned at school, that the army was the guarantor of peace and prosperity in Myanmar, was a lie. He began reading about the army's oppression, the crimes that it had committed against ethnic minorities, and he began to grow angry. We hope that this will be the beginning of a new era where there will be more emphasis on the role of the people in the everyday politics of our country. We also hope... When Aung San Suu Kyi, the democracy activist, was allowed to run for office in 2015, this was the first truly fair and free election in Myanmar in, in decades, Tinlin voted for her, as did the vast majority of, of Burmese voters. This was a really positive moment for Myanmar. It seemed to signal that the country was moving in the right direction, that it was embracing democracy. And this is a great thing for Tin Lin. It meant that he could set aside his anger. He could focus on his work. He was getting really busy. He was working three jobs. He set up his own business. But then in February, everything changed. That was the month when the army staged its coup. Tin Lin told me about how soldiers shot at protesters, how they conducted midnight raids of the homes of people they suspected were harboring activists. As the crackdown continued, the resistance decided it had to change tactics. Peaceful protests just weren't working. So grassroots activists and politicians deposed in the coup began talking about forming a federal army to rival the military, also known as the Tatmadaw. So these were young protesters like Tin Lin. He was very eager to enlist. And this marked a change within Tin Lin. Really, before the coup, he says that he had never dared to touch a gun, that he resisted the temptation to even swat at mosquitoes, which is a common saying in Myanmar, but I think really conveys his attitude to violence. All of that changed when the army started shooting at civilians. So in April... He stole out of Yangon with a bunch of friends, and he, over the course of several days, made his way to a training camp deep in the jungle close to the border with Thailand. And there he learned how to build bombs and mines. And after six days of training and in pretty rough conditions, made his way back to Yangon in order to put what he learned into practice. So one day in May, Tin Lin and a group of friends decided that they were going to attack a group of soldiers posted uh, at a location in downtown Yangon. So Tin Lin was the lookout. His job was to make sure that the targets, 12 soldiers, in their pickup truck at the corner of the street in the middle of Yangon, were there. On the morning of the attack, he put on his disguise, a food delivery driver jacket. He hopped on his bike, he cycled to the location, and he confirmed to his comrades in his cell that yes, the targets were there, and that yes, the tangerine-colored rubbish bin was, as usual, just a few feet away from them. And after a a nerve-wracking wait of several hours, his comrade arrived, and he tossed the IED, which was contained in a plastic KFC bag, into the bin. And that was Tin Lin's cue to leave. And as he cycled back to his safe house, he kept expecting to hear the explosion any minute. But he never heard it. Eventually, he got a phone call from a comrade. The IEDs must have been faulty. 
because they didn't detonate. And that's when it all began to fall apart. His cell was poorly funded, badly organized. They began having arguments. They found out that one of their number was stealing from them, and they hadn't managed to kill a single enemy combatant. Tinlin was beginning to think that the risks they undertook in their missions just weren't worth the rewards. And after three months of working for the resistance, living off of his savings, he needed to earn some money. Now, at first glance, one might think this is a predictable demise to Tinlin's career in, in the resistance. He didn't have any, any funding. There was no organization. But in fact, many protesters have succeeded where Tinlin failed. Hundreds, perhaps over a thousand soldiers have been killed in guerrilla attacks, according to a group of deposed parliamentarians. Junta forces are stretched thin as they battle these new guerrillas and more established rebels on the borders. And you, we, we can tell that the junta is really concerned because they've been launching bomb attacks in rebel-held territory with something they haven't done in decades. But I think for all its success, the resistance is vastly outnumbered by the army and it is hugely fractured. So unless the shadow government is able to fund and to arm the guerrillas and unify and organize these disparate resistance forces, the movement may well fall apart or run out of steam, much as Tinlin's group did. You could see his excitement and his conviction that this thing would work. And even though he says he's hopeful, he talks about joining the federal army less and less. And I think I can just, I can see the hope being leached from him. Earlier this month, a little piece of music history was restored. Michael Han writes about music for The Economist. The news was easy to overlook. Sony Music Publishing announced that one of its outermost divisions will be rebranding. What had been since 2011 EMI Production Music would become KPM Music once again. Listeners in the UK of a certain age will instantly recognise that music. It's the theme tune to Grandstand, the Saturday afternoon sports TV show that ran on the BBC for many, many years. Americans might instead recognise the end credits to Monday Night Football, Heavy Action. Both those themes, and plenty more like them, come from the legendary KPM label. And it's not just TV. KPM has influenced countless popular musicians of the last 50 years, making it one of the most important record labels you've probably never heard of. KPM existed for a long time before it was putting out TV themes like the BBC kids show Animal Magic. It actually started as a music shop in London in 1780, set up by Robert Keith, the K of the name. But since 1956, KPM had been a producer of library music. Library music is not music to be played quietly for the benefit of readers. It's music often used in TV shows and radio programmes. It's all music composed to a brief for one company, kept on catalogue, and then sold to accompany TV and radio shows and, well, yes, even podcasts. 
Especially through the 1960s and 1970s, so many long-running TV shows, especially in Britain, but in other countries as well, used production music tracks for their themes. Mastermind, Grange Hill, and the BBC's coverage of Wimbledon. Those were all production music tracks, and many of those shows still use the exact same music. Library music started spreading beyond its TV and advertising base in the 1980s and then the 1990s. Hip-hop took a great deal, from KPM especially. Producers loved that real musicians were playing things that couldn't be bought in shops. But right from the beginning of rap, KPM was there. What's hip-hop's founding text? Well, that's probably Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang. Now that's sampled, here comes that sound again by Alan Hawkshaw, a KPM lively track. But it's not only KPM whose music threads through hip-hop history. Of course, there are other music libraries and other tracks, and you can hear them throughout recorded popular music. Maybe you want to give a listen to Intergalactic by the Beastie Boys, which you'll find features a sample from Prelude in C minor. Not the Rukmaninov original, but the library music version by Les Baxter. Library music is not the rich trove of unexpected wonder it used to be, partly because crate diggers have drained that well fairly dry, but also because budgets are much tighter. It's very hard now to get orchestras in a room for three hours to play something that might never actually be used, although it does still happen. But the other thing is, AI firms are now creating a version of library music for a fraction of the cost. And EMI production music, rebranding back to KPM? Well, for some of this, that suggests there is still magic to be found in the shelves of the music libraries. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors this week are Kim Gittleson and Chris Impey. Thanks to senior producer Duncan Barber and producers Stevie Hertz, Alizé Jean-Baptiste and William Warren, and assistant producers Jason Hoskin and Abisoye Oshindairo. Extra production help this week came from Emily Elias, Pete Naughton, and John Joe Devlin. Our sound engineers are Saul Rivers, William Rowe, and Anthony Shaw. We'll all see you back here on Monday. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.